So first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the coaches and therapists in Taiwan? So Eric, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here talking with you. So my name is Luis Mesquita. I'm a, a Portuguese um, physiotherapist and also performance or strength and conditioning coach. Um, so I've been working in sports with athletes, mainly professional athletes for, for the last 10 years, um, in different contexts, different scenarios. I have experience working in team sports, such as, uh, football, uh, volleyball, roller hockey, and also with individual sports mainly in athletics, both here in Portugal and in China as well. Um, currently, I'm one of the owners of a couple of training facilities here in Portugal where we work with, with athletes from multi multiple sports. Uh, the, the facilities are called The Peak. So that's basically what I've been doing for the last, for the last few years. Oh, man. So from... A physio to a performance coach, how exactly, I mean, does being a physio help you with being a performance coach? And does being a performance coach help you be a, like, physio? So I think, I think both areas, they are, so when we compare physio or rehab and performance, uh, they might seem very different, but in my point of view, they are more similar than different, especially when you work under a musculoskeletal scope. So when you work mainly with with, with athletes or active people, um, the difference between uh, training and rehab is, is barely existent. So uh, they are pretty similar if we try to uh, to find, for example, what are the the, the main concepts or the main uh, areas of study. We are talking about anatomy. We are talking about biomechanics. We are talking about uh, physiology. But these are more like art sciences, but we are also talking about dealing with people. So things such as uh, communication, psychology, etc. All these things are very hand-in-hand -hand when it comes to rehab. And, and performance and for sure I believe that my initial background academic background as a, a, a in physiotherapy um, made me uh, gain probably a, a view about training that would be different if I was not a, a, a physio and vice versa so I think both areas are are very very similar and there is a a phrase from a known physio, well-known physio called Phil Glasgow, that he says that rehab is training in the presence of injury. And and I, I definitely agree with that. I believe that when you are injured, you need to keep training around injury. And when you are not injured, you need to have like a rehab mindset about the overall scope of training of the athlete. So I think both areas are pretty similar. Cool. So working with tons of athletes and have like both sides of the character. So uh, I noticed that 
at the beginning of the China experience, you work with like uh, Exos and their check and, and China check and fill team, right? So, uh, doing some you, I noticed that you've done some like uh assessment. So, being a performance coach and being a physio, like what, like what kind of like assessment will you do? Let's say if you're gonna train an athlete like basketball or like volleyball. So I worked I worked in 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 China under different scenarios. I worked in in professional in professional football in China Super League as the first experience in China. Afterwards, I had the opportunity to join Exos in Shanghai, working for Shanghai Province. So we were preparing the. 2017 China National Games um, with Shanghai team and we so I was not working alone I was working with other staff members for example another colleague of mine also Portuguese we were working together in Shanghai also for Exos Fabio Martins and he's a, a physio so I was working more uh, as a strength and conditioning coach trying to develop uh strength qualities mainly with the the heavy throwers so more with shot put and discus throwers so we did our assessments together fabio was more the physio side was more in charge of uh, mobility stability so things more related to the to the, the quality qualitative side of movement and I was more in charge with the quantitative, uh, with the quantity side of the equation. So when we when we talk about strength, strength qualities such as maximal strength, explosive strength, strength endurance, etc. So basically, when we start working with an athlete, um, the first thing to do is to try to explore what are his or her. Uh, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so we do like mobility assessment, like a joint by joint approach, trying to see where do we have barriers to to movement expression. After you also need to 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 test for strength qualities such as maximal strength, which is the maximal force you can produce irrespective of time. Um, we also test for explosive strength. That is the maximal amount of force you can produce normally in a short period of, of time. And this time frame is specific for a certain event or, or, or sport. And basically when it comes to the strength testing, these are the, the most, most common testing. These allow us to know what are the strengths and weaknesses of the athletes so that Afterwards, we can use this information to to program our intervention so that we can be more of a sniper. So trying to trying to to touch in training elements that will make the athlete improve the most. So overall, the concept of testing is this. Cool. So, uh, for those like experience, do you find like? Do you find like any kind of athlete that have like certain types of body 
like certain body types, like like a soccer player, is it like more taller, leaner, that kind of stuff? Yeah, for sure. In different, so there is natural selection for different for different sports, and within each sport, we have, for example, in in football, you have different positions. So you can, of course, there are outliers and there are exceptions, but uh, normally you will have faster guys, more reactive guys uh, playing on the wings. So, for example, as a fullback or a winger or even as a forward, while, so these are the athletes that have a speed profile, and we might also have other athletes that have the other extreme or the other end of the profile, which could be an endurance profile, and those are the athletes who are more prone to play like in the midfield, so they are not so fast, but they can endure more work, and you have those hybrids, you have those guys who are Fast, not as fast as the speed guys, but they also have endurance. So normally there is a natural selection within each position. And for example, if we go to, to athletics, we also see the same. So in different events, you will see a natural selection for reactive guys and fast guys to be uh, allocated to the jumps and sprints. And the... the Big guys, the strong, the muscular guys um, will be more allocated to uh, like to to multi events or to, or to throws, etc. Um, however, within each sport or within each event, for example, in the sprints or the jumps, you can find even differences. You can have guys who are more reactive than others, and you can find other so more elastic in nature, and you can find other guys who are more uh, force dominant who are more muscle uh, type or concentric force type of uh, of athletes and of course in those cases you need to approach them differently so if you work with a very elastic sprinter or jumper and in the same group you have a very muscular athlete who depends more on contractile elements they probably will adapt differently to training. So if you give them the same stimulus, they will adapt adapt differently. And normally, we tend to drive our intervention towards the weaknesses of both. So for example, an elastic guy, we try, so he's not so strong in, in terms of concentric force. And we try to improve that weak side. And for the muscular guys, we try to do the opposite. They are not so reactive or so elastic. So we try to make them more elastic. And normally, especially when talking about high level or elite athletes, that doesn't work pretty well, especially if you work through a competitive period. So for sure, under the same sport, under the same event or under the same group of training, you will have differences. So you need to approach them differently. And that's where testing can be very helpful to identify those strengths and weaknesses. So before we discuss about like what kind of tests you as a like therapist or as a performance coach would do, so now kind of ask like normally as performance coach, we test like vertical jump or like reactive strength index on the force plate or we test their sprint time like 
a five meter, ten meter, twenty meter, or like forty yard dash. So, so, uh, mainly just asking about you. Is there like certain like jumping, uh, test jump testing you're gonna do with your athletes? Yeah. Uh, so regarding the the jump tests, I think I've already been in multiple uh, with multiple point of views. So I think everything is always developing, but this is my current point of view. I think if you work with a force plate. You basically need, uh, or you can do two types of of tests in order to to test different qualities. So, for example, a counter movement jump allows you to assess the eccentric strength of the athlete because under the force platform you can know how much time they spend decelerating their body when they are going down in the eccentric phase. So you can test their, you can know exactly what are, what is their eccentric strength, how much time they need to produce the impulse necessary to jump 50 or 60 centimeters in a counter movement jump. So that will be a manifestation of a, a, a slow stress shortening cycle, which lasts normally in a counter movement jump uh, from the moment you initiate the counter movement, it will last around 500, 600 milliseconds. For the slower athletes, it will take 700, 800 milliseconds. So this is called a slow stress shortening cycle. And you need to expose them to another condition that is fast stress shortening cycle. Normally is considered uh, below 250 milliseconds. So for that, we may use, for example, a drop jump from different heights or, and this is my favorite that I normally use, uh, to use repeated jumps. So in place, repeated jumps. With this, you can compare, you can establish a ratio very commonly called like reactive strength index where you, where you compare the, the time spent in the air or the jump height compared with the ground contact time. And this is a proxy to know how reactive is an athlete. Normally people do this kind of tests using double leg, so bilateral jumps. I think for the reactive tests, we have more information if we do it unilaterally, especially if we are talking about sprinting and jumping. I think that can be um, a good a good measure to establish, for example, even deficiencies. It's very common to find athletes, especially post-injury. Uh, for example, if you have an athlete who has an ACL reconstruction, um, it's very common to find one year after like their maximal strength is back to normal. But when you test one limb versus the other in repeated jumps, you find very big differences. And this is an injury risk factor. So we are talking about vertical jumps, right? But we also have horizontal jumps. So we can also test, for example, a broad jump, which is a measure of a slow stress shortening cycle. But we can also test 
like multiple bounds or multiple jumps, which will be a measure of reactive strength in the horizontal uh, direction. So overall, these are the tests that I normally use, vertical tests. I'm talking about a counter movement jump uh, with body weight and my ad, for example, uh, external loads to the, to the vertical jumps. I'm talking about repeated jumps. So in order to test for reactive strength and in, when it comes to horizontal direction, I'm talking about things such as the standing long jump or when if we want to test more reactive strength, the standing triple jump uh, or the strength, uh, the standing uh, five, five bounds or four bounds with a jump. So these are broadly the, the main tests that I normally use. Love it, love it. So that's like uh, all the question I have, I have for like the previous experience. Now I have some question for the thing you post on Instagram, which I find very interesting and very, I really love that. So the first question would be like, you posted a, a, an article, not one, but several articles about like, like uh, the recent paper about not not all strength created equal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can Can you like give us some of your thoughts? Some of your thoughts about this? Yeah, for sure. So I've been lately. I've been posting a couple of infographics on on social media. Uh, I'm trying to get a little bit more consistent in, in that sharing because apart from loving to work with athletes, I have another another passion, which is sharing information. I think all of us, like you are doing a good job in that, inviting people for your podcast or your show. And, and that is a way of sharing information. And, and if you all share, everyone is going to, to gain benefit from it. So that's what I've been trying to do over the last few months. And when it comes to strength, normally we like to call an athlete strong if we if he has a very heavy deadlift or squat or bench, right? And that's a way of being strong, okay? And that's very important, especially if your sport is Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting. Okay, that's very important. I'm not saying it's not important for the other sports, but we need to have in consideration that that is just the manifestation of being strong and is normally correlated with maximal strength. So normally we call an athlete strong if he has a lot of maximal strength. However, we have other strength qualities as well or strength capacities, or strength manifestations that we want to call it. We have maximal strength. As I said before, is the maximal amount of force that we can produce, either concentrically, eccentrically, or isometrically, irrespective of time. So, for example, in powerlifting, you, if you want to, to complete a deadlift, is you don't have time limits. You just need to move the bar from A to B, respecting the rules of the sport, and that's fine. When we come, we have another strength manifestation that is called explosive strength. That is basically the maximum amount of force you can produce 
in a certain time period. So now time is important. And normally for, for sports performance or even for sport, for injury prevention or injury risk reduction, that time is short. We have very short time to produce force. Normally for most sports, we are talking about under or below 250 milliseconds. So to reach maximal strength, normally we need over 500 milliseconds for sure. In sports, we just have like below 250. And for example, for a sprint in a team sport athlete, we are talking about like 100 milliseconds for an elite sprinter in track and field. We are talking about 80 to 90 milliseconds. So it's very short time. And by la at last, we have strength endurance. So is how much time can you maintain a certain force production? So basically, the difference between the three strength manifestations, maximal, explosive, and strength endurance, the difference is time. The time that you have available to produce, to produce force. Normally, we only call strong an athlete who has plenty of maximal strength. But as we can see, it's not the only one. And you may find people who run, for example, maximal velocities of 12 meters per second. So they are running around 43 to 44 kilometers per hour, if we want to use kilometers per hour as a measure. Uh, and those people might not be the strongest guys in the weight room. But we cannot say that they are not strong because for you to run at that speed, you need to apply a lot of force into the ground. Otherwise, it's not possible to run fast. So I think I think being strong, in order to, to classify an athlete as being strong, we always need to have two things in consideration, context and time. So what's the context? What kind of activity do you need to do so that we can know if you are strong or not? And how much time do you have available to produce force? Of course, especially for developmental athletes, young athletes, if you improve your maximal strength, everything will improve automatically. Normally, might not happen all the time, but normally this is what happens. For more advanced athletes, if you want to make them faster, just improving maximal strength is not enough and so basically this is uh, this is what i wanted to touch in that infographic that i mentioned so we have different strength manifestations so we need to test and train them differently so uh i noticed that you put reactive strength and um explosive strength in different like art like two different articles so why do you like separate these uh so reactive strength and explosive strength so they they have a, a, a common thing that is time so you have limited time to produce force however when we talk about being reactive we are talking more, more about the usage of the stretch shortening cycle especially like the elastic energy from connective tissue and tendons. So that this is the, the biggest difference. While explosive strength is more related to rate of force development, and it's more dependent, although, for example, tendon stiffness will, will, will change 
rate of force development. The more stiff you are, the more rate of force development you can have. But it's more related to contractile structures. So it's it's basically how explosive can you be? Um, how explosive can you be? Uh, more using contractile force, while uh, in reactive strength, there is of course, especially uh, uh, an isometric muscle action uh, to 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 serve as a uh, a base so that the tendons can can stretch and accumulate uh, and store energy um, elastic energy and so we are talking more about contractile force in explosive strength while in reactive strength we are talking about more elastic strength coming from elastic structures so how exactly can we like train like all these like different types of strength Okay, so maximal maximal strength basically is dependent. The main factor uh, to improve maximal strength, so force is dependent on structural things such as muscle cross-sectional area, so muscle size, muscle penation angle, so all those architectural changes within the structure, muscle, tendons, etc. So this is one thing. The other thing is neural adaptations. And in neural adaptations, we have what is called intramuscular adaptation. So we are talking about motor unit recruitment. We are talking about uh, motor unit synchronization. We are talking about motor unit firing rate. And we have intermuscular coordination, which is basically the interplay between different muscles like agonists, antagonists, agonists, agonists, synergists. So this is more related to motor learning and motor efficiency, the intermuscular coordination side, while intramuscular coordination is more like the the engine so when we train for maximal strength we already know we can improve maximal strength through structural changes and neural changes some sports have uh, can and can have the privilege or uh, can have the the luxury of there's no problem to improve, for example, muscle mass. You can get heavier, and that, in fact, can be a tremendous advantage for your sport. So, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm remember recalling, let's say, sports such as combat sports, depending on the 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 class, the weight class they are into. But if they are a bit heavier within that class, that might might benefit them. The same for contact sports such as rugby or American football. The guys who are in front uh, trying to tackle and projecting other opponents, if they are heavier, they will have more momentum. So it will it will aid them in their performance. However, we have other sports such as the jumps, the spring, endurance sports. If you get heavier, your performance will 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 be armed uh, will will suffer from getting ever heavier so 
we tend to try to improve maximal strength in those cases through neural adaptations. And the number one thing in training to improve neural, neural adaptations is maximal intent. So every time you are trying to move, for example, a barbell or a dumbbell or something like this, especially in the main exercises, you should try to move that as fast as possible. And that's very important for maximizing adaptations, even more important than the load itself. So it's more important than the load to try to move it as fast as possible. So that's a very important thing to train, for example, to improve maximal strength. Uh, when it comes to improve, for example, explosive strength, again, maximal intent is very important, but now we need to try to... There, there are two things that you can do. If you move with maximal intent, even if this, the movement is slow, so it means you are using an heavy load, you will improve explosive strength as well as or rate of force development. However, it will be more transferable when you try to move heavy stuff. So for example, if your sport, if you are uh, a player in rugby, where the, your goal in, 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 in your sport is to try to move an opponent, a guy, another guy with uh, 100 kilos, you should improve your maximal or your explosive strength using heavier loads with maximal intent. However, if your goal is to try to move your own body in a jump or sprint, you should be improving your explosive strength or your rate of force development under low loads. And here, low or medium. So here we are talking about jumping or throwing, ballistic stuff, where you accelerate all the way during the, the concentric phase. And for example, for reactive strength, this is where it comes the plyometrics let's say. So where plyometrics or even sprinting, sprinting is a plyometric activity. So it's, you need to be, to be stimulating the stretch running cycle and the very short times. So overall, these are the training methods that can differentiate if you are training for maximal strength or explosive strength or reactive strength. So these are probably the main the main classes and of course we can go dive deep within each one of them but generally these are these are the biggest two i love that so since you brought up like plyometric you also have some interesting thoughts on plyometric and i really love how you explain it so can you like talk a little bit about your thoughts on plyometric how you divide it the, how you divide the mechanical load and how you like see the scale. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the mechanical load. The, uh, a, a big problem or that I see, for example, in research that is published uh, about plyometrics or a big question or a big doubt that always people have about plyometrics is how many? How many jumps? How many contacts? How many? How many? Should I do in a training session or a week? And you might ask me if 500 contacts in a session is a lot. And I might say it can be like a pretty warm up or it can lead you to the hospital. <laughs> so it all depends on the mechanical load 
involved in those exercises or those activities. And in order to differentiate mechanical load, there are a couple of things or factors, pretty easy factors for us to consider, but they are based on physics and biomechanics. So we know that in plyometrics, one thing, the, the most important thing to generate loads, load or uh, force uh, or, or impact forces is gravity, right? So we use gravity to, to, to increase, to increase the, the impact forces associated with the plyometric activity. So having this in consideration, we also know from physics in high school that there is a thing called potential energy. And potential energy basically mentions or tells you that the heavier you are and the higher from the ground you are, the more potential energy you will have. What does this mean? It means that before you, the, the, the very the moment just before you hit the ground, for example, if you have a ball and you put put it at two meters height, okay, and the moment just before the ball touches the ground, it will come with a downward velocity, negative velocity in relation to the ground. The higher the ball the ball is, the more momentum it will take it will have before it touches the ground. So the, the the higher and the heavier, heavier ball will also have more momentum just before they touch the ground. So this is very important for us to establish the first factor for work is the fall height. So how high are you falling from when you are doing plyometric jumps or plyometric activities? So if you are jumping from a low height, the mechanical load associated with it, it will, it will be low. If you are falling from a very high height, it will have more mechanical load associated. So this is the first factor. And now we can, we can try, now you can ask me like, how high is high enough? You know, so... For certain, for some athletes, fifty centimeters will not be so so intense. But for other athletes, it will be very intense. I like to I use normally three ways to try to establish what is high for an athlete. The first one will be a simple one in comparison with how high can that athlete jump in a counter movement jump. So, for example, if you are falling from a height that is below your counter-movement jump height, prob probably it, will not, it won't be so intense, probably. If you are falling all, uh, above your counter-movement jump, probably that's already falling in the intense classification. Another way is to use, for example, different drop jumps, different box uh, different boxes. For so, for example, you put an athlete doing drop jumps from twenty centimeters, ten, thirty centimeters, forty, fifty, etc., 
and you will see which height maximizes your reactive strand index. If, so for example, you can find that most athletes or a good athlete would, will be at 50 centimeters, for example, 60. If you are using a, an activity that you are falling below 50 centimeters, that won't be so intense. If you are falling over that height, probably it will be very intense. Another way to classify the intensity through height, fall of height, uh, is trying to see how much time you are. So for example, if you are falling from 50 centimeters, okay, it will, before you touch the ground, it will have a flight time, right? If you are falling from a box of 50 centimeters, before you touch it, you have a flight time, you have a ground contact time, and after you have another flight time because you jump after the contact. If the second flight time is much below the first one, so if you are jumping much less than the height that you were falling, it will be considered intense. So this is the first factor. The second factor is horizontal velocity. So normally, if you are jumping in place, it means you have zero horizontal velocity. It will have low mechanical load associated. If you are, if you are, if you have high horizontal velocity, it will have higher mechanical load associated. So this is the second factor. The third factor will be rigidity or the strategy utilized in ground contact. You, you, you can use a more compliant strategy. So it will be correlated with longer ground contact times. And that is associated with lower mechanical loads. And you can have a stiff strategy associated with ground contact, low ground contact time or short ground contact time and that will have higher mechanical load. And last but not least, the type of landing. So if you are doing double leg or single leg, if you are doing double leg, it's easier than doing single leg. Why? Because double leg, you have two limbs that act to decelerate your own body. So it, it will have lower mechanical load. And if you are using unilateral variations, it will have higher mechanical load. So these are the main four factors that we need to analyze for each exercise. And in the end, you can classify the, it as being with low mechanical load or extensive variation or with high mechanical load, like intensive variation. Of course, there are other things that influence, for example, the, 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 the surface type. So for example, if you are jumping in sand, it will have less mechanical load than if you are jumping in concrete. And the type of footwear you are using, if you are using, for example, if you are using running shoes, it will have less mechanical load than if you are jumping or sprinting in spikes. So all those things, they influence the way you will program volume, especially in plyometrics. So if you are using a very high mechanical load activity, and people normally don't think about this, but if you compare, for example, maximal sprinting, sprinting and maximal velocity, you are talking about, if we go to those factors, 
fall height very short because the center of mass does not oscillate so much during sprinting. Horizontal velocity is very high. Rigidity for elite sprinters, we are talking about like 80, 90 milliseconds, so very short ground contact time and is in one leg. So sprinting is a very high mechanical load activity. While box jumps, a box jump is not, it's not even a plyometric, but it's very low mechanical load. So for those activities with low mechanical load, you can use more volume, more contacts per set and per session and per week. While with more intensive variations, you need to use to use to use less. So basically for mechanical load, I would say this is a very important concept to grasp both for training, but also for rehabilitation. I think for rehabilitation, this is where I see the the more mistakes in terms of players. So what are like some, or like, can you give us some example, like what types of mistake you see the most? Yeah. So for, uh, I see, for example, for um, let's say a post-surgery case, uh, ACL reconstruction. So we are talking about an athlete that will never come back to his sport or his activity, or at least it, it should never happen before six months, should be nine months, 12 months, and so on. But people, they start to utilize like unilateral plyometric variations uh, very early, like in, in stiff, in rigid surfaces. And normally the structures are not ready early on to handle that kind of impact. And even another, uh, another situation or another context where I see mistakes happening, is for example during tendinopathy rehab. So when athletes have like Achilles, Achilles, Achilles tendon issues, tendinopathy, or uh, patellar tendon tendinopathy, I think we should progress like rehab from low mechanical load to high mechanical load, and this needs to happen. And a good thing that we can use for that is, for example, apart from the four factors that I mentioned, like the the the, the fall height, the horizontal velocity, the rigidity, the type of landing, etc., is for example the surface. You can start dealing with certain cases of tendinopathy after the acute phase of tendinopathy, apart from the gym work, working with isometrics, etc., for tendon tendon adaptations, you can start integrating plyometrics, for example, in soft surfaces, such as sand, and progressing to natural grass, progressing to artificial grass, progressing to uh, tartan in a, in, a, in a track and field track, uh, progressing to concrete. But there is a progression from low mechanical load, which is not so demanding on the structures and on the tendons, and you are progressing all the way up to high mechanical load. People normally do two mistakes. Either they start with high mechanical load, 
that's mistake number one, or they stay forever in low mechanical load activities. So for example, rehabbing only in sand, and you need to expose the tendon to, for in this case, to high velocity, to short time, to short ground contact time, because that's what they will face in their in their sport. And, and the proof of this is, and a lot of people who might be listening to us, my work, for example, in, in football or team sports, where normally athletes might play, this happens at least in Portugal pretty often, especially in lower level or academy level teams. Like if you have a team that during the week is training all the time in natural grass and they come to the weekend and they play in artificial grass, the the the, the most common uh, complaints after the match will be my back is hurting or my knee is hurting or my Achilles is sore. Why? Because when you have less time to produce force, tendons and elastic energy are more are more utilized. But we have the other situation where you have athletes that during the week they play, they train in artificial grass. And on the weekend they might play against a team that plays in our, in natural grass. Normally in those cases, the players will complain from heavy legs, sore muscles. Why? Because when you have more time to produce force, the tendon is not so involved, is more contractile force. So you need to do this progression during rehab, otherwise you are not exposing the tendon to the demands of the activity they will face after rehab. So these are probably the most common things that I see in players. Love it, love it. So you also mentioned like tendinopathy. So as a performance coach, I always, I, I always trouble to like, to like, uh, to really know like what, if their knee pain is it is it tendon off tendon pain or like like just like something going wrong with their knees? So is there like certain like assessment to do to make sure that it's a tendon pain or not? Yes, there are there are different structures that might be involved, but I think the, the number one thing that we, we should mention is that for you to have knee pain whether it's in the tendon area or not, you really don't need to have damage in the structure. So you can have, there are plenty of research and studies that come to this conclusion. Like they, they test several people, they try to see, they, they examine, for example, using ultrasound or MRI, uh, a bunch of people, hundreds or thousands of people, and they try to establish a correlation between damage in the structure and pain or functional outcomes. And the, tr the truth is the correlations are very low. So you have people that have pain and don't have any damage. You have people who don't have pain and have a lot of damage. And you have people who have pain and damage. So the thing is we... Just because we have pain, it doesn't mean that we have damage in the tendon or in the cartilage or in the joint, etc. And this is 
I think this is very important uh, because it changes the mindset of the practitioners because normally when we have pain, we always think, oh, something is wrong with my knee. And, and this normally can be a problem in managing the psychological well-being and confidence of the athletes, especially next to competitive season. So uh, pain is very complex. It depends not only on the structures or the bio bi biological side, but also on the, on the, is the athlete resting well? Is the athlete training well? Is the athlete eating well? So everything changes pain perception. However, we cannot ignore that some pain or some symptoms might be correlated to what's happening structurally. So in the case of tendons, um, there are tests that you can do. It's more normal. You have tendons who are more painful under stretching. You have tendons who are more painful to touch. You have tendons who are more painful at doing a concentric action. It depends. I think the number one thing, instead of trying to find the cause, is trying to deal with it. And and a very important thing to deal, especially with this overload or mismanagement of training load, is you need to adjust training load. That's the number one thing. And this is a very difficult thing to do, for example, with endurance athletes. I have experience working with some endurance athletes, endurance runners, and they are normally prone because they train with very large volumes. And when normally you have, like, for example, Achilles tendon pain, it's very difficult for you to change the mindset of the athlete that, okay, to deal with this, you will not stop training eventually, unless it's very acute. You will not stop running, but we need to adjust it. We need to, to change the way you are training because that's the number one thing. If you don't adjust training load, you can do whatever you want. We can do like the, the isometric work. We can do like, everything, all the progressions. But if at a certain point you don't change or adjust the training load, it will be very hard to, 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 to deal with these situations. And normally during, especially during in-season, it's more about management than fixing. It's more about this. It's like trying to manage the, the, the symptoms in a way that you can keep training and competing without without flaring up the, the the situation. So I don't think there is a like a magic solution or a magic recipe to deal with with tendon related pain, but I would say the number one thing is to adjust training load. And of course after you have research from Keith Barr and you have uh, research from other people who are exploring this topic that tells you that we need to continue to load the tendon just in a different fashion in order to either reduce symptoms that might work for some people and also to make the tendon adapt and become more resilient and more stiff so that in the future the, the risk of getting back to the to the to the initial situation is gone so 
I would say this is my my approach to tending up. Love that, love that, man. So last thing before I let you go, okay? I want to go back to the uh, not all strength is created equal. Mm-hmm. When the when the paper like like went out, there's like tons of like strength coaches talking about the article about like they're excited like this is a new thing but for me i don't think as a like performance goal we view this as a view new thing right i think it's kind of like it's just some things we know and it's just published by an article am i right yeah for, for sure like if we try to go back in history and we try to see what are people doing now that is really new? I would say that we are doing the same things that were done like in the 60s and 70s. Like the majority of things that are done today in training overall, not only in strength training, everything. Like it was discovered or invented or suggested by the Soviets, and the Germans, like 60 years ago, 50 years ago, there's nothing really new about what we are doing. The main thing that changed over time is technology. So for example, you have tracking bar velocity or velocity-based training. Like the Germans were doing this 60 years or 50 years ago, but probably, Instead of using a unit this size or accelerometer or using a VBT box this size, they were using like <laughs> a, a very big instrument. And there are videos of this, like in the 80s, where you they were using very expensive, first of all, and very logistically hard to manage. Uh, so they were more present in labs for research. And today we can have our mini lab even in our pockets with phones, right? So so this is one of the major differences. The second difference is the availability of information. Like uh, today I want to know something I just I go to either social media or I go to a journal website with a couple of clicks and I have access to the information while I cannot imagine how it was like 30 to 40 years ago. Like those guys, those coaches like Dan Puff, Randy Huntington, etc. Those guys are genius. Why? Because they have all the information for so many years, but they didn't live in an era or a time where information was so accessible. And today everything is easy for us in terms of access information. It's easy, but at the same time, it can make our life more difficult. Why? Because you are more exposed to things that um, might not be so correct because anyone can write anything on social media or something. And if you don't have a big filter, you will end up going into rabbit holes. So I think what we do today is not so different. Everyone was doing this. Like if you go to track and field training and you see how athletes are training, etc. Like 
it didn't really change. You know, like we are doing the same stuff for 50, for 50 years. And that shows us that training, like using science to develop training, etc., is a very early, it's a very young science, very young. So there are a lot of to develop, but when it comes to uh, strength training, speed training, plyometrics, like you go to the super training book of of Verkachansky, or you go to other literature from other authors or other coaches, and you see, like in the 80s, 70s, 60s, they were already doing that that we use that we use today. So I agree with you. It's not new. It's just recycled. Recycled using like more accessible technology and information. Appreciate that, man. I really love our conversation. So for those who are interested in what we are talking about today, like where can they reach out to you? And where can they find those interesting posts? <laughs> yeah, I'm more like in social media. I'm more on Instagram currently. Like my my profile is like, my name is Luis Mosquito with double M. Probably after you can you can write that down because it's not easy, especially for someone who is not from Portugal, to understand or to or to or to or to, or to spell it. But normally I'm over 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 social media. That's where people can find uh, me more often. Also on LinkedIn. I also have Twitter, but I don't use Twitter. As I use Twitter to see what other people are doing because it's not so common in Portugal, um, but I, it's a very uh, it's a tool that I use every single day. But I just don't share a lot of stuff over there. Um, yeah, mostly on on Instagram. So that's yeah, it. appreciate that, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for for having me here and keep up doing the the great job of sharing information with with other people i've been enjoying it so it's a pleasure to be part of it of course, of course. glad man